Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Nate, hey, it's Luke. Hey, man. Hey, I know you probably don't listen. I do this podcast called 30 Pop, where every week we look back 30 years of what was happening in pop culture. So we've just now started looking back at 1990. And I noticed in my research that 1990 is the year that Pearl Jam was formed. And I know you're a longtime Pearl Jam fan. I remember my first day of freshman year of high school, I remember a kid was wearing a Pearl Jam shirt. I mean, I honestly thought it was like a Smucker's reference or something like that. But like this kid was like a little bit ahead of the, you know, the curve. I mean, like he, he was like already wearing like the merch, like first day of school. And I, yeah. I it wasn't until a couple of days in school that I, I just kind of figured out what was going on. But That's yeah. impressive. And when did your fandom sort of begin? Probably after I stopped listening to the former Christian group Point of Grace. When I let Point of Grace go... I switched. I made like a hard pivot. The pendulum swung far. Yeah, I swung, I swung, I swung pretty far from Point of Grey. So I would say maybe 91, 92. But the thing is, is man, when you're a kid like that, like you don't really understand how heavy-handed those lyrics are. When I look back on it now, I'm like, man, I can't believe that I was listening to, or that my mom was oblivious to the fact that I was listening to songs about school shootings and things yeah. of this nature. It's pretty heavy-handed back then, so yeah. For sure. All right, man. Well, hey, I'm going to start the episode now, but so good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too, man. All right, we'll see you. I'm in. Later. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 2. It's hammer time. Almost. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, January 13th, 1990. Hello, friends, and welcome. After a really short and relatively uneventful first episode of the season last week, I'm back with significantly more to talk about from this week in 1990. Thank you so much, as always, for joining me. Just for a change of pace, why don't we lead off with a celebrity birthday for once? 30 years ago this week, on January 13th, 1990, was the birth of Australian actor Liam Hemsworth, best known for his role as Gail Hawthorne in the Hunger Games trilogy and for being the less beefy younger brother of Thor star Chris Hemsworth and the less controversial on-again, off-again boyfriend and spouse of pop star Miley Cyrus. I don't know just a ton about Hemsworth, but in prepping for this episode, I did learn that he, as well as his actor brothers and his estranged, soon-to-be ex-wife, are all generous and active philanthropists. The Hemsworth brothers most recently made news for donating a combined $1 million to help fight the horrific wildfires currently devastating their native Australia. And he and Cyrus donated a half a million dollars as well a few years back to relief efforts for the wildfires in California that claimed their Malibu home. Well done, Liam. If you want to join him and his family in helping with the aftermath of the tragic fires in Australia, which have to date already claimed the lives of at least 24 people and an estimated 1 billion animals, many of which are now on the brink of extinction, I've included a link in the show notes where you can donate. Just consider it a birthday tribute to Liam. 
Speaking of movie business brothers, 30 years ago this week on January 10th, Warner Brothers Pictures, the film company founded in 1923 by Polish immigrant brothers Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack Warner, merged with Time Incorporated, the media company that gave us Time Magazine, also in 1923, and HBO in 1972, to become Time Warner, known today simply as Warner Media, one of the largest and most powerful media and entertainment conglomerates in the world. Other headlines from this week in history... On January 9, 1990, after multiple delays, STS-32, the 33rd and longest mission to date of NASA's space shuttle program and the ninth launch of Space Shuttle Columbia, launched from Florida's Kennedy Space Center and spent 11 days in orbit. I couldn't find anything especially unique or notable about this mission, but, I mean, an 11-day trip to space seems notable enough in and of itself. In Hollywood, the number one film in the country for the second of three straight weeks was Oliver Stone's award-winning drama Born on the Fourth of July. And in music, the number one single on the Billboard Hot 100 chart was Once Again, but for the final week, Phil Collins' Another Day in Paradise. Other songs that were charting well, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, which held the number one spot on the Billboard Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, Keith Whitley's It Ain't Nothing," which topped the Billboard Hot Country chart, and The D.O.C. and The Doctor by promising young Ruthless Records rapper The D.O.C., which was number one on the Billboard Hot Rap chart for the third week in a row. Jumping back up to the number one album spot on the charts was, for the last time ever, Millie Vanilli's Girl You Know It's True. But the bigger music news 30 years ago this week was that of the release of rapper MC Hammer's chart-crushing, industry-changing sophomore album, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, on January 12, 1990. I cannot sufficiently describe for you the impact this album had on either the pop or hip-hop music worlds or on me as a 10-year-old hip-hop-loving suburban kid, at least not by myself. So I invited my friend and past guest, actor, musician, and former Mickey Mouse Club cast member Damon Pampolina back on to help me out. Here's our conversation. Damon, welcome back to 30 Pop. So good to have you on again. How are you? Honored to be here, sir. Thank you so much for having me again. So we are here today to talk about an album that released 30 years ago this past week, the sophomore album from MC Hammer. Please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Incredible. You a fan? 30 years. Huge fan. I had a feeling when I saw this on the calendar, I was like, who do I bring in to talk MC Hammer (laughs) for the first of what will be many conversations this year, as this album is going to absolutely wreck the Billboard charts later in the year. Rightfully so. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. And you came to mind. And so- Right on. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to talk. Now, you mentioned via text that you have some pretty specific memories about- When you were a cast member of the Mickey Mouse Club, you interacted some with MC Hammer. Yeah, yeah. Regale me. He kind of was intertwined throughout my career, interesting enough. And one of the stories is pre-Hammer Don't Hurt Him, as you said, it was a sophomore album, so the freshman album, I saw and heard him for the first time at the same time on BET as the New Jack Swing era was going on, and I was totally enthralled with that. Got to see Pump It Up, and he was the first rap artist to really combine rap, hip-hop, and dance. Mm-hmm. Me being a dancer, when I saw that, I was completely captivated. Loved the energy. 
in all fairness, I totally respect where he went as an artist, but I just loved the original Hammer with the yelling, with his hype man, mm-hmm. that screaming, that Petey Pablo-ish kind of swag he had. And then, of course, the dancing was just phenomenal. So after seeing him, then flash cut to getting on the Mickey Mouse Club, we were so enthralled with him that we mentioned to our music director, you got to get this guy on the show. And they looked into it, and they were totally interested in doing it. And what was great was that he did not have foul language, so it could have worked. He just had too many in his entourage. And that was in the beginning stages, you know, which it then even evolved even more. But that was the first story of my career paralleling with him and kind of what was going on with his movement. We tried our hardest. And then they sent, Hammer's team sent the demo video. And so, of course, we were watching it on VHS over and over again. And the one video that sticks out on that demo video was Turn This Mother Out. Yeah. And it was just phenomenal. And I give credit to him, really. I think he was the start of the running man, or at least that was the first time that I saw this this dance floor. I mean, he was super innovative on the dance floor. And that was such a, you know, we talked a little bit before about how at this point in history, everything was sort of trending towards, you know, harder and harder rap. So like gangster rap was like blowing up. We had NWA was crushing. We're fixing to see the debut of Ice Cube as a solo artist in 1990, if I'm not mistaken. You know, so things are trending away from sort of the fun, playful hip hop. Yeah. And then here he comes. And I, I really believe this is kind of why he had the entourage is because, you know, he had that first record where he is like super aggressive and like yelling into the microphone and then pop music begins to embrace him. Right. And I think in my mind, at least I would love to interview him and ask him this, but like, I think the entourage was a piece to help him not seem like a pop star, but to still seem like he could compete with like the NWAs and public enemies and these, you know, these rap groups that were so prevalent at the time. Great theory. Yeah. Because he did have the ability, especially in the beginning stages where he, kept uh, street cred and was dancing and was considered kind of underground very hard to do especially at that stage of popular music and so we were lucky enough to then and i'm going to evolve into what we were talking about earlier that yeah, we, yeah. we were lucky enough to uh, once on the mickey mouse club a female host Moeva, uh took me albert chase and raquel all original members of the show to a show mm-hmm. uh it was guy and a female r&b artist i can't think of her name right now and then hammer and we were just loving him live, right? I'm the energy sure. was even that much more than what we saw in the video. And she somehow maneuvered to get us backstage. So to then get to meet him, and this was before Hammer Don't Hurt Him. This was okay. before that album wow. came out. And it was just awesome. There I, you know, maybe 13, 14, just saw him maybe a year ago prior, all enthralled with him. And then now to get to meet him in person was just killer. How was he in person? What was that like? So great. And you could tell, very humble, answered our questions, answered how he got his name, and uh, was just very, very grateful that these young kids of all different nationalities were supporting him. And I think, you know, you look at what he evolved to, he was a visionary and he goes, you know what? I want to go mainstream. I want to cross over. I want to go pop. And I don't care what any artist says. Ultimately, you want as much of a fan base as you can get. Sure. And so I think he started seeing that he had that capability to cross over and that probably started getting the wheels turning for the next album, which, you know, as we talked about, explodes. Brother, explodes. Yeah, I mean, it's just massive and it sparks an entire movement. I mean, so like, yeah. 
without MC Hammer, undeniably, you get no vanilla ice. There is no lane for vanilla ice if MC Hammer hadn't created uh, it, you know, which, which happens later in the year. I mean, yeah. he loses the spot on the number one chart when vanilla ice comes along exactly. and, yeah. and begins dominating the charts, which yeah. is, is going to be super fun. I just fun love talking about. about this era, man. You're bringing me right back. You know, what it's funny. Trip. If you kind of think about it, though, he was almost like Kanye 1.0. And I don't mean like all of the kind of weird Kanye things or even the brilliant producer Kanye but in that he was an icon in so many ways. So he sort of had his space and the respect of really like hardcore rappers. I mean, he and Tupac were like good, good friends, right, you know? Right, He also had the entire like pop music world loving him for one, for the music, but also just for the dancing. And he fully embraced that. I mean, there's a line and you can't touch this when he says, I'm dope on the floor, but I'm magic on the mic. Like he, he fully embraces that he is both of those things, but he's also a fashion icon to people back yes, then. Yes, sir. He created an entire fashion movement that was yeah. ridiculous, undeniably, but which we still see sort of remnants of in these like, you know, big baggy pants that you see like yeah. Justin Bieber and guys wearing that. I mean, that's, yeah. that, they're just... MC Hammer's yeah. style yeah. From, from the uh, 90s. And, and even prior to the Hammer pants, if you will, prior to that, the rayon pants, Cavaricci with the patent slip dress shoe, no sock, mm-hmm. which is a huge movement now, back, he started on the first album, which I was all over. Yeah. You know, so the styling, he, listen, man, like any other mega artist, he was an original from head to toe, mm-hmm. his music to the fashion yeah, and he he did. He created that movement on the second album with those pants. Yeah, and I don't care what anybody says. You owned a pair. You you yeah. had them. We had them. We were rocking them on the on the Mickey Mouse Club, and we had them to the point to where, uh, you know, the crotch part was so low you could almost pull them up to your shoulders because they would come all the way up. And still fit. Yeah, and still yeah. fit. So it was an amazing movement and a fashion icon. And then, you know, the stats. I mean, that album went on to do some crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, insane, insane. And we're going to revisit it a whole lot this year. I want to have as many, you know, MC Hammer kind of guests and stories on the show as possible because we, you know, he basically bought us that margin. So in a year like 89, which we just finished, you had, I don't know, 25 different artists who held the number one album spot at some point during the year. I think the longest anyone held it in 89 was Janet Jackson. She had it with for four weeks wow. with Rhythm Nation. It's something like 21 out of 22 weeks Ooh. of 1990 that this record holds the number one spot. And that doesn't even start like for a couple of months after it releases. Right. So we're going to have lots of time to talk about Hammer as awesome. we go. So I would love to hear from you. You know, as a kid growing up doing entertainment, you were constantly singing, dancing, rapping yourself in front of folks. As a dancer, what sort of influence was Hammer on you and on the folks that you were working with back in those days. Yeah, being at that age and so influential, the one thing that I took from him was energy. And there, if you notice, man, when you went back, especially again, in the beginning stages, pump it up, mm-hmm. turn it out, there was no messing around, man. He was full-blown energy, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what the movement was. And that was one of the things that I tried to take from him. And if you ever have an opportunity and you're going to bring it, you better, you better bring it full yeah. throttle and try to be as original as you can. You know, it, he created some of the stuff that set a whole movement, yeah. you know? And so those were some of the things that I was trying to take from him is try to be as original as possible and bring the energy. Yeah. That guy was all about energy. Live, he was incredible. Uh, I, I can't yeah. imagine. I never got to see that, but, yeah. you know, maybe maybe he's not done yet. Maybe I can still see Oh, it would be I'm awesome. sure, you know, we got all these and, other guys. And, and, you know, think the about the, the movements. I, I want to give him credibility for the running man. I want to give him credibility. We have all different type of names for it. Call it the typewriter, whatever, yeah. from Can't Touch This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had some, other, you know, Too Legit to Quit and all this stuff. It goes on and on and on. He really, for every album... He started a new 
dance. Absolutely. Yeah. And just language. So I'd never heard the phrase, you can't touch this before him. I'd right. never heard too legit to quit. I mean, that's all native to him. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. he was interesting in also that he was, I mean, if you think about it, I don't know anybody else in rap music that was talking about West Coast at that point. They were right. still like, what part of LA are you from? What part of New York are you from? But he was representing Oakland nationally, internationally. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's amazing. I think that's part of why he was embraced by Tupac and that whole kind of West Coast, you know, rap yeah. crowd. That's, but that's think about guess. it, but a completely different sound and vibe than the rest of the West Coast yeah. had going on at that time. Yeah. Uh, he put Oakland on the map. O-Town 357, yes. those girls they were bananas. Mm-hmm. The energy, too, and what they did, and it was under his influence. That was awesome. I, I'm telling you, it's very difficult to maintain street cred, originality, and also be able to cross over, too. It's one of the toughest things probably in music, and he did it effortlessly. Yeah. He, was, he was really good at doing that. He was, I think, the closest thing hip-hop has ever had or, or maybe will ever have to like a Michael Jackson type I agree. figure, you know, cause he was, you know, he's so connected to like James Brown. He was a marketing, I mean, you have to be a marketing genius because yeah. the, just the campaigns that he created out of yeah. songs. Yeah. One of the things I respected about him too, was I heard the story that when he first started out, he was pressing his own albums or maybe cassettes and selling them out of the trunk of his mm-hmm. car. And when he got his first record deal, he turned it down cause he goes, I can make more doing it on my own out of the trunk of my vehicle than what than the deal you guys cut me. That's wild. As an artist that was in the industry, I heard that and I was just mad respect. Mm-hmm. Loved the idea of that. And I was like, that's just full blown grind and belief in yourself. And then to be able to tell your first record deal, peace, I'm not gonna take it. Yeah. Oh, that's just awesome. But even the, awesome. the idea of I mean you mentioned like you as an artist, you you basically want as big an audience as you can have. You want to you want to appeal to as many people as possible. So, you know, he always made a point to have one quote-unquote Christian song on mm-hmm. his records, which yep. uh, they're kind of ridiculous, but like that like gave him a pass. I mean, my, my parents were folks who, they're probably listening to this too, who, <laughs> you know, like if I got in trouble for like cussing at school, I would have to tear up all my rap tapes. And I'd be right. like, but it's MC Hammer. Like he doesn't, right. he has Christian music, mom, right. you know. Right. And so he worked it out so that he could be, he could have the respect of his peers in that hip hop community, but still get in there and yeah. like, you know, parents are buying this for their little white kids like me. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and uh, you can't get mad at a man because, uh, he stayed true to what he wanted to do in his vision. And again, another thing that's not easy to do in the business because everybody's trying to control the record company's trying to tell you what to do. I'm sure he had to fight many, many people, you know, to do the Christian based music thing. And it was just his belief. And you got to love him for that. And I remember in an interview, he said, look, if, if I'm a sellout, if being true to myself and everybody loving my music and I look out at my crowd and I see all different nationalities and that's selling out, then I'm a sellout. Mm. Then give me the staple. I don't care. You know, yeah. God, how great is that? Yeah. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, real quick before we wrap up, you got a favorite song off this record? Oh man, there's so I can, many. I can give you the um, track listing if you want to hear it. We yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here Comes the Hammer was the opener. You can't touch this. Have you seen her? His, uh, his cover of a, it was like an old 50s like doo-wop. It, he, you know, it's this ballad. Have you seen her? Do you remember this Yes, song? it was awesome. Yo Sweetness, Help the Children, On Your Face, which was an Earth, Wind, and Fire cover. His Dancing Machine, Jackson 5 cover. Was great. Freaking love yeah, that song. It was great. Pray, which was huge. Crime Story. 
She's Soft and Wet, which is a song title that should never exist. Interesting. Black is Black, Let's Go Deeper, which I remember, and Work This. Those were his, that, that, was the, that was the record. You know, Here Comes the Hammer still had that flair from his first album. Yes, and he kind of had that screaming and that energy. And uh, I love that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, even over, uh, Can't Touch This, for me. I love that vibe that he had. Uh, he had the hype man screaming, and I just, yeah, that, that hammer is the one I fell in love with. Yeah. Respected him, what he evolved to, but just loved the yeah. original uh, stuff that he was coming out with, and, and Here Comes the Hammer still had that flair, you know? Yeah, it definitely did. I yeah. think for me, it would have to be Dance Machine. I was a huge, am a huge Michael Jackson fan, Jackson 5 fan, so hearing his take on that song, which was just different enough to, for it to feel like his own yeah. thing, I just I just love it. It still kind of still kind of gets me. Yeah. Damon, love having you on. We'll bring you back soon. Thank you, sir. Looking back at 1990, thanks so much for being on. We'll see you next time. You got it. Okay, so full disclosure, after recording this episode in its entirety, I realized that in my research for this year, I wrote down the wrong date for this album. It actually released on February 12th, 1990, not January 12th. But I loved this interview and had already done enough work on this episode that I wasn't about to scrap it and start over. So for just this one episode, let's just pretend it's 29 and 11 twelfths pop. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled outro music. I wish you could all have the opportunity to just sit and chat with Damon for a bit. The guy is a veritable wellspring of early 90s pop culture anecdotes. He did everything and met everyone, and it's just so much fun to have him on the show from time to time. Huge thanks to Damon for being a part of this episode. Thanks also to you for listening, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing this show. If you want even more early 90s pop culture goodness, join me on Patreon at the link in the show notes for as little as $1 a month to access all kinds of bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group podcasts. That's how I afford to spend my time researching 30-year-old pop culture and interviewing childhood heroes. And that's work someone has to do, right? Friends, I'll be back next week with a very fun episode looking back at the release of what's become an absolute cult classic film franchise and interviewing one of its stars and writers. You don't want to miss it. Until then, remember, it's Hammer, Go Hammer, MC Hammer, Yo Hammer, and the rest can go and play. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>